Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Most of what we know about the explorer Henry Morton Stanley is summed up in this one question, which he may or may not have actually asked. Dr. Livingston, I presume. That's Spencer Tracy as Stanley with Cedric Harwick as Livingston in the 1939 epic. Author and historian Michael Robinson is taking a deeper look at Stanley and his role in a complicated and fascinating idea, maybe myth, maybe truth, that white tribes lived in Africa. He's just returned from a trip to Uganda doing research for a book called Lost White Tribe, Explorers, Scientists, and a Theory of Race that Changed Africa. He'll be speaking more about his trip and his upcoming book today at the University of Hartford's Mortensen Library. That's at 1.30 p.m. Robinson is Assistant Professor of History at the University of Hartford and is our go-to expert on exploration. You can check out his blog, timetoeatthedogs.com. Michael Robinson, welcome back to our show. Hi, John. Thank you. Now, you've been on our show before talking about your book, The Coldest Crucible. It's about Arctic exploration. Why are you now focusing on Africa? The uh, This project actually grew out of that project in a, in a small sort of way. I, when I was researching um, my first book on Arctic exploration, I came across a story of a guy, Vilmer Stephenson, a Canadian explorer who went to the Arctic in 1910 and came back with a really weird story. He uh, supposedly came across a group of people on Banks Island uh, who were blonde. He called them blonde Eskimos. And the story was so bizarre, I couldn't figure out a place to put it (laughs) in my first book. Uh, So I tucked it away and put it in a file. And then as the years kind of progressed and I started thinking about new projects, I kept stumbling across these stories of people finding white people in weird places. And um, by about 2010, I decided, you know, this I have to put this together. And the most compelling story of all was really the story of Stanley and his so-called discovery of a white tribe in uh, East Africa in 1874. So first of all, who was Stanley? Stanley was a, a reporter for the New York Herald. He, he was born in Wales and came over to the United States as a young man, did a number of different jobs, was actually a Confederate soldier for a while, and then eventually got into the reporting business, became an intrepid reporter for the Herald, and uh, was kind of their go-to guy for stories about Africa and the Middle East. And then in the late 1860s, a British missionary, uh, Livingston, uh, who had been working in in, uh, in Africa for a long time, went missing. Nobody knew where he was. And Stanley was directed by his employer to go find him. And when he finds Livingston and reports on it, it became a spectacular story. And he became instantly uh, an international celebrity. So move his story forward to the 1870s where you begin your book and, and the exploration that he's on. Stanley, after he comes back and he you know, becomes this really, really world-famous guy, immediately people start asking him, what's your next project? And for Stanley, really, the big project back in Africa was the uh, f- determining the source of the Nile. 
after Livingston, in fact, Livingston himself had spent the last part of his life trying to figure out where did the Nile start. It was really a 2,000-year-old project. And although two uh, earlier explorers, uh, John Speak and uh, Richard Burton, had said that they had discovered the source, there was real controversy about it. So Stanley was back in Africa again to kind of clear up the mystery of the Nile. And then hopefully also after he did that, uh, try to figure out where the Congo start originated, the Congo River, and try to trace the Congo River to its uh, mouth on the Atlantic Ocean. So those were his two big projects. Went back in 1874 and really was in the midst of trying to complete those tasks that he makes these weird other what we would call anthropological discoveries. So these anthropological discoveries, um, maybe you can ex- describe exactly what it is we're talking about. You you say earlier this idea of white people in weird places. Well, what exactly did he find? What did he report back? So Stanley is trying to get to Central Africa from East Africa. And while he's in the area that we now know of as Uganda, um, he... Uh, comes into the the court of a very powerful African king by the name of Mutesa, Mutesa I, who's the king of Buganda. And Mutesa and Stanley hit it off, and Mutesa ends up essentially giving Stanley an escort of 2,000 Africans to help him on his way west. Stanley immediately notices that some of these Africans don't look like other Bugandans. They're very, very light-skinned. As he calls them, he said, they look like Greeks in white shirts. Mm. So he starts to ask about this group of strange-looking Africans. And they say, well, they're not from Buganda. They're from a a region to the west called Gambaragara, which is um, a mountainous region. And they live on the top of this mountain. And he starts collecting stories about this group of people. Well, a few weeks later, he actually is with his escort, and they see this mountain from a distance, and it's got glaciers on the top of it, even though it's on the equator. So this begins to kind of uh, work itself out in Stanley's mind, like maybe this isn't just a myth. Maybe there's something to this story. The reports that he gives back on this, are they confirmed by other people? Do we know this to be true? Is this just some, some sort of a myth that was spread by someone who perhaps wanted to find something that uh, wasn't really there? That's really the $64,000 question. Who were these people that Stanley saw? I I climbed the mountain while I was in Uganda, and I can tell you <laughs> there, there, Ain't are nobody no, up there. there are no, no <laughs> white tribes on the top of Mount Stanley. And um, so that's really a question that I, I've thought a lot about, and I think I'm going to try to pick it up at the very end of my book. Who were these people that he saw? There's no evidence that they were racially white in the sense that Stanley intended them or thought of them. Of European descent. Thank you, yeah, of European descent. At the same time, I don't think Stanley was lying. Um, in fact, there's all kinds of other stories. There are other explorers that go to Africa both before and after Stanley who report on these white tribes. And even Africans themselves have a series of creation myths which talk about light-skinned people coming from the north to populate uh, regions of East Africa. So I think that what uh, and in a way, what happened with Stanley, and this is my my best guess, is that he ran across people who looked different from other Africans because we now know Africa is the most 
diverse region in the world when it comes to human genetics. I mean, you find radically different looking people in Africa. And that I think one of the ways that people like Stanley try to, let's say, put this difference in a box is to call some of them Caucasian or proto-white or white-looking and others as black or African. And many other people from explorers to anthropologists were doing that same kind of categorization in the 19th century. I, I guess one way to look at it through a 21st century lens that's m maybe less charitable toward, toward, <laughs> toward Stanley and, and toward his contemporaries is that if Europeans were able to find uh, tribes of white people who had power in Africa, that might change a little bit of the dynamic of colonialism that had caused so many problems for people of Africa and then essentially disintegrated in the 20th century. It, it really would change the narrative, wouldn't it, if, if white people were part of the African fabric in a way that maybe they're su uh, subscribing to here. Exactly right. And I think, in a way, the two the two ideas are not mutually exclusive. You can look at somebody and say, oh, this person kind of looks like this. And at the same time, in, in framing that person as white, in framing certain Africans as white and others as not white, then it, it actually ha can help. It has these uh, uh, other you know, abilities to help the colonial project. And that's how it was used by many, many people, especially in South Africa and in Rhodesia, which today is uh, Zimbabwe, the the myth of the white tribe that predated black Africans was used to great effect by people who wanted to say, you see, we're white people and we belong here. Mm. Michael Robinson is a professor of history at the University of Hartford. He's working on a book called Lost White Tribe, Explorers, Scientists, and a Theory of Race that Changed Africa. It's going to be out in 2015, but he's talking about his book and his trip to Uganda to do research. Today at the University of Hartford's Mortensen Library, it's happening at 1.30 p.m., this is where we live. So tell me about your trip. As you do research for this book, obviously you're going to trace some of these same footsteps. Tell us about where you went and how you decided to insert yourself into the story. I, I thought about this trip to Uganda for a long time, and it was actually it was, it was kind of tricky for me because I didn't exactly know what it was supposed to be. Was it supposed to be a, primarily a a archival research trip where I'm digging up historical sources, or is it an experiential trip where I'm going to the the places that Stanley went to and Mutesa went to? And I, in the end, I figured out I really had to do both. And so I spent about uh, 10 days in Kampala doing archival research and speaking with historians and political scientists who deal with this issue of theories of race in Africa. And then the second part of the trip, I spent hiking in the Ruwenzori Mountains, which is the largest mountain range in Africa and which is the site of Mount Stanley. What did you find on your exploration, the trek part of this? Because obviously, you're a professor. You do lots of research in, in libraries and other places. That's interesting. Not as exciting as, as getting out on the trail yourself. So what was it like? Describe the, the exploration. The, the, the Ruwenzori Mountains are an incredible region because if you want to think of it, the the mountains separate the Congo River Basin from the Nile River Basin. So as you're hiking the Ruwenzores, you're really looking at those tributaries that are the furthest away from the mouth of the Nile. So from where I was hiking at the top of Mount Stanley, the water from that one side of the mountain will go 4,500 miles into Lake Victoria and 
then out into the Mediterranean. And if you put your feet on the other side of the summit, those waters will be traveling through the Congo Basin 4,000 miles to the Atlantic Ocean. Wow. So it's a really incredible place. And then on top of that, the ecology of those mountains is just... The the closest thing I can describe it to is something out of a Dr. Seuss book. There are giant lobelias and blue colobus monkeys and uh, birds that you can hear but can't see. And and, and, uh, it's it's a magical place. It's really an incredible place. Is it a place that many European or American uh, adventurers, explorers, travelers get to go? No. Uh, The ruined Zories have been kind of, I think, almost the— the hidden gem of of mountains uh, worldwide, and particularly in Africa, a lot of climbers uh, do Kilimanjaro because it's the highest mountain, or Mount Kenya, which is the second highest mountain. But the Ruwenzori Range is more difficult to get to because it's really kind of um, well, it's it's between the countries of Rwanda, Congo, and Western Uganda, so it's difficult to get to. But uh, it is an incredible place, and. Climbing the Ruanzoris is really not about making it to the top. It's really about the the process of getting there, the journey, because the as I as I mentioned, you're moving through three or four um, ec- ecological zones as you go up: bamboo forests, heather forests. So there's always something new every day. Exploring a place like this that is off the beaten path of tourists or explorers is. Probably, it probably allows you to better replicate the types of adventuring that, that Stanley may have done himself, I would assume, although there's more creature comforts. <laughs> yeah, I, I inf- but, but your point is actually true, which is that um, I think probably the biggest insight for me in climbing is to realize that even, even with those creature comforts, as you said, I was doing it, uh, I, you know, I had my malaria pills, I had my, yeah. my shots and my vaccinations to keep me safe. Uh, I was with a trained guide who knew, who knew the mountain very, very well. So in all of those levels, I really had it much better than Stanley. And yet still, I felt at times uh, really um, kind of pushed to my limits physical limits in terms of dealing with altitude uh, or in dealing with the mud because we were hiking for two days through kind of knee-deep mud, but also just this feeling you get of isolation when you are thousands of miles away from people who you know. Uh, That was something I thought a lot about in the context of Stanley and how did these explorers deal with this, not for weeks like I dealt with it, but for years. So, and I want to make sure that I'm pronouncing this right. What is a mazungo? Oh, <laughs> mazungu, mazungu is a, a term named for a white person in uh, in Uganda. And so that was you. That was me. It was, was was it clear to 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 you at all times that that that's who who you were on this uh, on this trip? That I, I found uh, I was very fortunate on this trip that I met in some incredibly. Um, generous, warm people in Uganda. And uh, particularly in my stay in Kampala, I had some Ugandan friends who took me under their wing and showed me the city and showed me the sites and helped me with my research. And I felt it very easy to connect with them and communicate with them. It was a little stranger when I went to West 
uh, Western Uganda for this hike because the the guide and the porters who were helping me get to the top were part of an organization in which which viewed me as the client and that that setup of kind of the client uh, worker relationship was very Victorian. I was <laughs> climbing the mountain. I'd be caked with mud. Uh, hadn't washed in four days, and yet people were serving me tea at, I, at I, four o'clock. I, 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 I want to read just just a little bit from your diary. It's your it's at your blog time to eat the dogs. dot com. You write when I visit their quarters to talk, they stand, go silent. I'm unshaven, unshowered, caked with mud, but I'm still the Earl of Grantham, and I've come to servants' quarters unannounced. My liberal politics, my critiques of colonialism, Victorian explorers mean nothing here. I enter a fixed role, one that's been set in place in Africa for hundreds of years and is kept in place by all kinds of trekkers, organizations here. Kilimanjaro, maybe the Himalayas too. I'm head Mzungu. It's upstairs, downstairs, only at altitude. Where's my pith helmet? It's a great description of this, but you get the feeling of no matter how much you might want to turn around and say, hey, no, I'm one of the guys. I'll carry my own pack. That's not how it works. Right. And I think that was a shock to me because I felt, and I think Americans in general like to feel that they are, belong to a classless society where we normally don't have servants and we take out our own garbage and put it on the side of the curb. And so when you go to a place that sees you in a certain way and frames you in a certain way, it's difficult to deal with that. But I also had to admit to myself that while I might be a middle-class academic here in Hartford, as soon as I get off the plane in Uganda, I am a fabulously wealthy person because my middle-class life brings me resources that the middle class of Uganda could never uh, get for themselves. So, for example, most people of our so class, so to speak, uh, don't have washers or dryers. They do their laundry with scrubbing them and putting them out on the line. And uh, they, most people don't have cars. Uh, most people have difficulty getting um, many of the basic resources of life that we get to here. And even I remember being on a bus coming back from the West, and uh, I was sitting next to a man who had a background in physics, mathematics, and economics. He was looking for a job in Kampala. He said he'd take any job, any mm. job he could find because it was so difficult to get work. And he asked me, wow, that's a beautiful camera. How much did that cost? And I was a little bit embarrassed to tell him because I know that even though it's a point-and-shoot camera here in the United States, that was an incredible amount of money in Uganda. Mm. I wonder if, if you, and you must grapple with this or think about this, as you tell the stories in this book and in some of the other work of this, this great kind of um, colonial explorer, this idea that um, the European man would conquer the world and find places that, that no one else has been, that, that that you're playing into this this kind of historical narrative that has been so difficult, so destructive for for the people of Uganda. That indeed you're you're, you're telling this story, a story that needs to be told. But we're also fascinated in, in celebrating this in a way that we perhaps wouldn't celebrate the the first Ugandan who got to the top of the mountain. If you know what I mean, I do, and that has been a real tension for me in writing this book because the last thing I want to do is to write a book in which I say. Well, enough about Africa. Let's talk about the white guys in Africa. Yeah. Uh, those books have been written. They've been written for 150 years. And so it was very important in writing this book and thinking about it to try to f make sure that it in includes the voices of Africans themselves. And I think actually the story of uh, Lost White Tribe is one that relies very much on these African voices because Africans – 
um, from Mutesa to the East Africans to um, a number of other Bantu peoples from South Africa really contribute to the story, both to the creation of the myth, but also the way the myth continues to, let's say, exist in Africa today. So, for example, this idea of uh, a white prehistory in Africa has been debunked in academic circles. But if you go to Africa, you can find many, many people who say that their origins are not African, that they actually come from a people outside of Africa. And that is kind of like the ghost of this idea that continues to exist in Africa itself. Do you have more trips that you have to take before you complete this book? This is my last major trip. I have some little trips planned, but not major ones. Well, we're going to be fascinated to hear more about it. Uh, Michael Robinson is writing a a brand new book that's coming out in 2015 called Lost White Tribe, Explorers, Scientists, and a Theory of Race that Changed Africa. He'll be talking about it today at the University of Hartford's Mortensen Library at 1.30 p.m. We'll put more information on our Facebook page at Where We Live. He's also author of the blog TimeToEatTheDogs.com. He's our go-to exploration expert. It's good to have you back from Africa, and thank you for sharing this story with us, Michael. Thank you, John. Coming up, artist Lucy Orta joins us to talk about her exhibit, Food, Water, Life, an exploration of the major concerns that define the 21st century. Biodiversity, environmental conditions, climate change. It's now on view at Wesleyan University. That's coming up right after this break, where we live.